Hello, and welcome to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. My name is David Vanderveen. I've been fortunate enough to build businesses around the world with thousands of entrepreneurs. You can find out more about me at davidvanderveen.com. But, you know, as I've traveled the world and, and had these opportunities to meet and work and, and alongside a lot of very interesting people, the question that I keep getting is, how can I create the life that I want? How can I create the brand, the behaviors, the, the culture that motivate and drive me? And so this podcast is dedicated to those questions. It's interviewing other people who are on that journey, as well as telling some of my own stories that I hope will help anyone who's wanted to start their own company, create their own brand, build their own life, figure out how to do it for themselves. The simple answer is there are no simple answers, but I think that if we work together and if we interact and if we workshop, we can figure out great ways to move forward in life and create a life worth living, a life with purpose and meaning, a life that makes us all a little bit more kick aspirational. Welcome to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This is Dave Vanderveen. I'm excited that we have Natasha Hogan on today. Um, you know, the Kick Aspirational Podcast is all about going on a journey. It's about helping people break through barriers in their life and, uh, and you know, discover things that they didn't know that they could do. And part of the reason I thought it'd be interesting to have Natasha on, she's got over 20 years in luxury residential home building, but her work is sort of the non uh, non how do you say it? Non-technical uh, side of it, more of a cultural side, more of a, uh, a soft soft skills side. She's known as the culture fairy. She's the VP of marketing development at Dugali uh, Overfeld, and um, and she focuses on people. And so I thought this would be a really interesting conversation about how how Natasha's ended up at this place in her life on her journey, but also how she helps other people that she works with. Um, discover themselves and break through barriers. So Natasha, welcome to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be a part of this. I've <laughs> listened to your podcast and even when you asked me if I wanted to be a part of it, I was like, are you sure? But this is great. I love it. No, well, I, th- I think what was interesting, you know, we, we met around the Visit Laguna um, interviews that were going on with uh, Maya from Maya Living, Maya O'Neill, and, mm-hmm. and you were there with her and and I was there doing some interviews. Um, but we had a great conversation and I felt like we really connected and, and a lot of what you were telling me was that, um, it just sounded like you had said, you know, you've, you, you operate at, you, you weren't blowing your own horn, but I picked up pretty quickly that you're working for one of the better, uh, contractors and developers in Southern California in LAOC in the desert, but that, um, your work with them isn't on the technical side of that business. It's really on the culture side. It's, as you said, I think, um, you really help get the most out of the people, whether it's your own staff or whether it's clients you have. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how you ended up in that place. Yeah, it is really difficult to articulate it. I think a lot of times when people meet me and you know, you're know you at a cocktail party or an event or where, whatever it may be and people ask, so what do you do? And of course, it's easy to describe the industry. It's a glamorous industry. People now have gotten so much more access to it with all of the reality TV shows of, you know, selling Sunset, selling OC, getting to experience feeling like you're in these homes of these luxury real estate properties that are located, you know, everywhere here in Southern California. But I always struggle with how I explain where I fit into it because I didn't go to school to be construction management or to be an architect or an interior designer. My path 
ironically, the way I first realized I loved it was when I was a little girl and my mom took me to something called the Parade of Homes in Colorado. And walking through these homes that had the crazy nursery in it or the home theater, these things that just weren't typical or what I grew up seeing every single day and getting to see like, wow, I had no idea this was even possible, piqued my interest as far as architecture and design, but I never really had this drive to actually be creating those. I always knew deep down, I just loved being with people. So for me, getting to be involved in the luxury residential space, it allows me to marry the two, my things that intrigued me and I'm curious about the luxury design space, but also getting to be with what I love, which is just people in general. And what are the different people groups that you work with? So I know you have staff and you have clients, but you also have partners, right? I mean, what, who, are, who are the different groups that you kind of focus on in your work? You know, every day it's working with a full range of people. So interfacing with the creatives, the people who are designing it, the artists, the craftsmen that are making these homes and spaces unbelievable and constantly pushing the envelope from a creative perspective. Then also interfacing with people internally. So our team at Dugali Oberfeld, the actual construction guys, for lack of a better word, that are accustomed to coming in and building it, just making it happen. And then also interfacing with our industry partners. So the architects and the people that are having to find ways to bring this all together, the engineers, the inspectors, and then last but not least, the clients, the one percenters that are accustomed to experiencing things that not a lot of people get to do. They have a luxury experience everywhere they go, whether it's how they travel, how they eat food, the types of restaurants they go to, when they go and purchase a car, typically they're walking into a very specific dealership. dealership. Right. You know, or they have the car being delivered to them. Um, They're not even walking into the dealership. So I, I work with all different types of people every day. One of the things that you told me, and I think this is really interesting because, you know, when maybe when normal people think about building a house or buying a house, you know, it's either a home that's already been built or mm-hmm. maybe they're modifying or remodeling a house. or Maybe they're buying something that's in a, you know, a, a home builder's development. Um, tell us about like, what's your average home cost? What sort of, I mean, give us a little, little background on what the luxury residential market looks like in Southern California. What's, what's the range of homes that you're working, that you're, that you're creating? I mean, it's, it really, whether it's, if it's on the coast, so let's say in Laguna Beach, where you and I spent time together, those I'm, homes. I'm sitting in Laguna on the coast in Woods Cove right now. Yeah. In a back cottage. It, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. L- living the life, right? Of the yeah. coastal breeze. Uh, but in Laguna, it's a lot smaller type of homes. They're more what I cottages, lovingly yeah. refer to as a jewelry box. Right. It's this tiny, beautiful little cottage that isn't necessarily perfect on every corner and every edge, but the surroundings of where it is, the location is incredible. So we've got those small jewel jewel boxes to homes in Newport Coast where that home I think we built was 
46,000 square feet, Whoa. Uh, which was one of the largest homes ever built in Orange County. Currently up in LA, we've got a home that's in excess of 100,000 square feet. Wow. So, oh, that's, we were talking about that one a little bit, right? There's right. A, uh, a single guy bought it as a, as a second home kind of a thing, right? Right. Am I getting that right? One, one, yeah, one of many properties. One of many properties. So, yeah. Many, many properties. Because for yeah. yeah, the clients that we are working for, this becomes an asset for them. It's just another place that is a good, safe place to invest money in. Right. Well, we have that here. I mean, I'm on. I'm in Woods Cove. I'm not on the beach. I'm I'm across the street from houses on the beach. So we call it the second row, not the first row. And you know, the first row here is almost entirely second homes. Um, it's mostly people who are buying an asset for their asset class that, you know, it's like, like you're saying, it's like Laguna Beach, Aspen, it's gonna go up and to the right over time. I mean, not every year, sometimes it'll go up and down a little bit, but mostly over time, it's just gonna continue to appreciate and people buy beachfront because it appreciates the most. Um, and it's also a lot of, well, it's very expensive, right? You're starting around $10 million for, for a shack. Um, so, so you're building some big homes, very valuable. I mean, these are tens of millions of dollars or more. Um, and your are your clients easy to work with? Or how do you pick your clients or how do your clients pick you? So are we allowed to use profanity? On you this can podcast? say anything you want on this podcast. It's your, it's your like interview. It you can in use words. Kick that, aspirational. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, one of, well, I shouldn't say one of our number one thing when we are, talking about the type of client that we want to be interacting with and building and going on this journey with because these scale of homes are never a short-term relationship. It's always several years typically of building and then after that, maintaining the home and being involved with our clients for years and years. So we have dubbed no assholes as one of our charters for the business that there's fortunately in Southern California, there are plenty of people with excessive amounts of money that want to build homes and create great spaces. So let's be smart about it and let's work with the people that are also kind and genuine and respectful because there's plenty of wonderful people in the world that also have money. Yeah. I mean, this is, I, well, back when I was working in politics and in the term limits movement, we had, we had a lot of attorneys who who worked for particularly my group. And, you know, uh, I was in my 20s, worked managing you know dozens of attorneys because we get sued everywhere we went on the ballot. Right. And uh, we used to have what we would call a low AQ policy, low asshole quotient policy, because um, like like any industry, there's people that are pretty proud of themselves and um, aren't easy to work with. And we just felt like we didn't need to work with them. We'd help them find a competitor to go work for. But um when uh, when you're talking about you know the the assholishness of somebody, um, what are the values that your you and your company really you know put a lot of stock in versus the ones that you don't want to have anywhere near you? This word I think is overused, but it's overused for a reason. Uh, people who are going to be collaborative, mm. people who are going to be open to let's build this together as a team. Let's focus on how, whether it's every, I I strongly believe that every project, and when I say project, I mean like the home, the actual home has its own culture, 
right? You've right. got different people involved. You've got the architect, the designer, the general contractor, oftentimes an owner's rep, the owners. And that, um, how do I say this? That culture can be a positive one or a negative one. So looking for somebody who is going to respect others' opinions, looking for someone who is willing to invest energy into something, not just money, but we want someone who's going to invest their their thoughts, their emotions that genuinely care about the process because there are a lot of people who are just parking money here and mm-hmm. bringing money you know, over to build a home and have it, but not necessarily caring if it's done right or not. Yeah. They just want to be able to say, hey, I've got the biggest house in the bird streets in LA or, you know, in Pasadena or the Palisades, whatever it may be. Right. Um, but not committed to building top quality and having it be a great experience. So those are the things that I am really looking for. And obviously I have gotten that from the founders of our company that it's very important to both Matt and Mauricio that we make sure the entire team is running in that direction with those type of people with similar values. And these are people who are catered to, right? These are people, like you said, they, they're used to, they, they live a luxurious lifestyle, whether it's their car, their restaurant, all of their experiences are very luxury driven. And, and you're the home building process that you're involved with with them is, is luxury driven as well. Um, how would that differ? Like how, how are you catering to working with partnering with, this type of a client differently than say if I'm buying or buying a house in a development or remodeling a house with a typical contractor and architect? I think for me personally, I look at it as the client base, like you said, is accustomed to the luxury experience and they operate typically where there's no excuses when they are looking for something or want something, it gets done magically right and so um being accustomed to that and being okay with that because for me i don't have a problem with that a lot of these people have worked really hard to get where they're at and great if you want to build an incredible home and you have the resources and ability to do it let's do it i love it i you know i i love that for them and um so I don't, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I mean, so basically you're, you do cater to their, I mean, one, you're determining is this somebody who's going to be a good person for us to work with. Like, are they going to be relatively easy to work with, transparent, honest, kind? I mean, those are all good values. But then I think secondly, what I heard was, you know, but look, this is a luxury experience, whether you're buying a, you know, Mercedes Benz and you're getting all the catering. I mean, one of the things I love about the dealerships here as an example, like Fletcher Jones, as an example, is when you buy a car from them, you also get free airport parking anytime you want, right? And they basically will shuttle you to and from the airport um, at Orange County or like, you know, they have espresso machines and chilled waters and, you know, it's somebody figured out that the total experience, that the 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 lifetime value of that customer is so, so significant that, you want to just make sure that not only do they buy the car from you, but they keep coming back for service and everything else that you can offer uh, because that lifetime value is very, very significant. It's not like you're selling them. You know, I happen to drive a Toyota 4Runner right now in Laguna. And, you know, the good news is I don't have to bring it into the dealership very much, but um, 
the bad news is uh, when I do, it's it's not the Fletcher Jones experience. Uh, so, no, and, and Fletcher yeah. Jones, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, when I have gone in there to service my car in the past, from the moment you pull in over the curb right there, right. there's people that greet you with a smile. They act like they're happy to see you. They act yeah. like you're the only person there that day to get yeah. your car taken care of when there's hundreds of cars there. It's the entire experience from start to finish is a smooth experience. And, and by the way, I, I should mention Don Crevier too, because he lives literally <laughs> about half a block at Moss Point where I was just free diving before okay, I got on the so He go. lives right next to me. So I, Don <laughs> Crevier, also excellent car service. Um, not just not just a Fletcher Jones. I don't own either cars from either one, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, and when you talked about it's the luxury custom versus a track home experience, it is a different experience. Right. It, no matter how you spend it. I mean, there's it is a business when you are working in construction. And so there is a very different model. I think when it is a production home where, hey, you've got package A, B, C, or D to choose from. And when versus, you come- Versus what do you want, right? Yeah, come to us, the package is, okay, tell me whatever you need because we're gonna throw everything in this cart and it's a Christmas wish list, and let's figure yeah. out how to make it come together. You want indoor water slides? We'll build it, right? It's like, what are, you, what are you looking for? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, and you know, we, we did a, we built a, um, not a 46,000 square foot custom home. We built a, you know, almost 5,000 square foot home in here in Laguna. Um, now we're in the process of redoing historic cottages, which is quite a joy, but, but so I, back to the well, we went back to the well, I guess we couldn't get enough pain and agony in our life. Yeah. <laughs> um, just when we got the other house styled, we, we decided to do it all over again. No, but we, you know, I, I think part of what I learned too through that process, is, yeah, you can do whatever you want, but, you know, part of doing whatever you want means you're also going to be fine tuning it when it's, you know, sort of done because, you know, I think we spent a year or two, you know, tuning it after we, after we finished the last one, just because, you know, there's a lot of custom stuff that um, no one's done before. And so then you're figuring out how to, not only how to install it and create it, but also how to manage it and operate it. And that's uh it's not always as simple as you might think, right? It never is, ever is. Yeah. So that's why, again, it's so important to surround yourself with the right people, having the right consultants, the right team. So when something comes up, you're not sitting there at 10 p.m. after you've had a long day, right. working all day, day, recording podcasts, whatever it may be, and you're finally ready to sit down and watch a movie with your wife and you can't get the TV to turn on or you can't get the lights to work or whatever it is in the you know technology system you have in the home. You right. want it to work. Right. Sure. So having the right people around you so that when you have those very few moments to actually just relax and enjoy what you have created around you, you want it to come together. And how does that work? So, you know, obviously, like we're having actually stakes are going up outside the back cottage I'm sitting in right now because this is our second set of design review or we had historical stakes that went up. Now we have design review. And if people aren't used to have staking their homes, when you live along the coast in Southern California, there's a thing called view equity, which yes. means your neighbors behind you um, have a view that's worth money. And if you're going to change that view, there's usually discussions that occur between you and them in the city. Couple <laughs> discussions. Everybody has opinions. Friendly discussions. You know, sometimes, <laughs> um, rarely, but the, uh, but so that the interesting thing is, um, I guess, you know, when you're doing these custom projects, you've got um, you've you've got a lot of interactions that happen. How do you manage the interactions between designer, architect, builder, 
people who are actually working on the project? How do you manage the discussion between them and the client and your internal teams? I mean, it seems to me like one of the biggest challenges is the project management for most projects Mm -hmm. like this. How do you manage your project management and how do you manage the interface with the client? You know, for us at Dugali Oberfeld, when we start in the very beginning with clients, one of the first questions that we ask our clients are, what is this project charter going to be? So let's all be aligned on that charter. And there's three things in construction and you can only have two. So you got to pick two out of the three. What's most important to you? Do you want this built fast? Do you want this built with budget in mind? Right. Or do you want the best quality? Right. Pick any two, right? Yep. You can pick two. (laughs) And then that way, when everyone's aligned from a design perspective, a buildability perspective, everyone knows that through the process of building this home, the decisions are made based on that project charter. So criteria. Yeah. Yes. We decide, okay, if, if you were to say to me, you know, it's most important that we get into this house before Christmas of 2025, then that tells me, okay, we've got a time here. That's really important. And you want the best quality that you can have. Well, fine, but you're going to have to spend more money. And so we know that every decision, we're not going to probably pick the cheapest guy, but we're going to pick the best guy and the one most equipped to deliver in the time frame that everyone has committed to. And so that's an interesting part of the of the contracting business to get involved in. I mean, I think most people who are involved in whether it's general contracting or architecture design, you know, they get in for technical reasons, right? Like a lot of contractors come out of the trade, like they've been active builders and then they kind of mm-hmm. graduate to, to contracting. They don't always have a lot of um, project management experience I've found, but um, <laughs> which I think separates a lot of builders from, from other ones. But um, how did you decide to get on the culture and the people side? Cause that's, you typically don't see people saying, you know, I want to, I want to get into the people management, the people development of a, of a, of a enterprise. Um, and I'm going to pick contracting. Most people would pick, you know, corporation or other, or let's say, you know, um, companies that really value knowledge workers. How did you, how did, in which I guess there are, is some of that in, in general contracting, but it's not the primary yes. driver in the business. How did you pick the culture side of a contracting business or a, a, a builder? You know, now in my forties, late forties, I would say most of my decisions are very strategic well thought out. I'm looking at all of the angles, reasons why I'm doing something. Candidly, in my 20s, I really wasn't thinking that strategically. I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast how I my eyes were opened up to what was possible when I did the parade of homes with my mom sure. um, and fell in love with seeing all this luxury design and architecture. But I started working for a in publishing for a magazine in Colorado. And, um, that was something for me. I really enjoyed all the people I got to meet different people all day, every day. And what was great is it was in a shelter publication. So I then realized, huh, I can marry the two, something I'm really interested in, but I'm also really good at working with people. And I don't think I even realized it at the time when I first started, 
uh, in 2009, I moved to California. My husband had been transferred from Colorado. We grew up in Colorado. I had ton of contacts, knew everything that I needed to know as far as the people I wanted to interact with. And we moved to California and I knew no one. And where were you coming from in Colorado? In Denver. Denver. So so the publication was based in Denver, right. But was doing a lot of work in Aspen, Telluride, the luxury markets up in the mountains, but primarily focused in Denver and Cherry Creek. And um, so moved to California and I remember thinking, all right, what do I do now? This is a huge market. And how do I make sure I'm aligning myself with the right people? And so ironically, I was like, I'm going to go back to where I started. I'm going to go back to selling ads and working for a publication. And that's going to be the quickest way for me to meet a lot of people and get a grasp of who I want to align myself with. Because I'm a firm believer and it's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know. Sure. And So for me, I felt like being involved in a magazine would be a great way. And it, it did, it worked. I met the right people and was fortunate enough to get some great opportunities and have built my way up to where I am now at Dugali Oberfeld. So, so you started in publications, which basically puts you in the center of the industry, right? Because you're dealing with Mm -hmm. builders and designers are meeting everybody which got you now you've been with, I think you said with Dugali Overfeld for four years, but you've been in the industry for, for more than 20. Yes. Um, And then you also, you're also very involved in a, in a, an association of builders, builders, designers, creatives. That's how you know Maya. Is that how you know Maya? Maya. Yeah. So Maya Maya and I met um, through a group called Estate Partners, which is an organization of subcontractors working again in Southern California. And I'm sure everybody, regardless of the industry they work in, has some form of a group that they go to that inspires them, helps them learn things. And hi, this is Dave Vanderveen. And and this is a little ad for my one of my favorite brands for Nirvana Water Sciences, where I happen to be the CEO. But I wanted to share with you why I became the CEO. You know, I I didn't have to get a new job. I didn't have to come to this company. It was some a company I've been talking to for over a year before I joined them. Uh, I was absolutely enamored with their science, with HMB, uh, beta hydroxy beta metabutyrate, which which amplifies protein synthesis. And you know, I'm 54. The older I get, the more that matters because as we age, you know, as we get past 30. We start losing five to six percent of our muscle mass every year. And, you know, I'm a guy who likes to get out there, get active, have adventure. And I like to, you know, ski powder and, and with helicopters. I like to surf bigger waves. I like to free dive. I, I like to move. I like to run. I like to trail run. Um, I like to hike. And all those things require lean muscle mass. I really wanted to find a place that was really focused on luxury construction. So, for me personally, I wasn't excited about joining a group where there is the insurance person and there's the <laughs> contractor, there's a restaurant owner, there's, you know, different Just industries. random, yeah, random right, industries. Random it's not really that, connected, yeah. Right, you can learn things, there's always value in it, but I wanted to focus my time and efforts with people that are strictly focused and have a passion for residential construction. 
So groups started and it was a bunch of business owners that came together and said, how can we grow our business? Initially, it was really focused on sales, you know, instead of chasing dumpsters that I like to call it around these gated communities, um, which is what it was in the beginning. Now we've really evolved into how do we help each other as humans? How do we build a life and curate experiences for each other and those around us that are going to be memorable and impactful? And so, it's and been is, awesome. is, this, is this a group that you started? Did this group exist when you did you join it? No. So I joined it as just a member at the time. And I guess doing what I do quickly showed that I wanted to do more with this group rather than just coming to a meeting twice a month. I wanted to help drive it and move it forward. And previous company, I worked for a technology integrator, Cantara, uh, that's based in Orange County as well. The owner of that company was actually the one who started the business, or okay. I should say started the organization. And so he had said, look, this is not my sweet spot. I'm not great at bringing people together. And somehow, you know how to herd cats. And, you know, we have laughed about it so many times that I tell him it's not cats. It's actually like feral kittens. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's amazing. And it's been now over 13 years with a group of people that I learned so much from and have developed really close relationships with. And you're creating, I mean, it sounds like the experiences are pretty remarkable. Can you tell us about like some yeah. of the most recent ones you've you told um, us about a little bit? Sure. We did um, every summer we try and create something because that's going to be fulfilling and inspirational, like fill up the tank of all of these creatives that are constantly trying to find something better for their clients to see. And so I, actually went to dinner with an interior designer and I was like, give me some ideas. What excites you? What's, where do you want to go for when you're trying to clear your head and relax? It's like, you know, Catalina, we live here, but I've never spent much time there. I'd be really interested to experience more about Catalina. And that is what started it and turned into this unbelievable experience where we got to actually interface with the owners of the island um, that I don't know if a lot of people know um, about the Catalina history, but we went to the island. We got to learn more about the architecture of the casino there, did an amazing wine dinner. Um, and, and, and that island's been owned by the Wrigley Chewing Gum family for what, over 100 years? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, the Wrigley family. Right. And they it's it really is a beautiful story about how committed their family is to creating a legacy on that island and not just selling it to some huge hotel developer that's going to come in and tear it down. I mean, they have beautified that island and created things that it's it's amazing it's it was nothing short of a spiritual experience candidly when we went there i think if you live like you know we're lucky to live in you know southern california and growing up here in or my kids grew up here in in laguna beach and you know so there's school trips that go over and camp out on, on my kids have Catalina. a week long field trip coming up right? next year at fifth Catalina. grade. Are they fifth yeah, grade? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and the kids, like my kids have gone, they would go with dads from here. So they were night diving and bagging lobster and they were, right. you know, they're just, they're doing all this cool stuff. And part of that's because the Wrigley family in, empowers that, right. They have these amazing um, yes. 
camps that kids can discover, you know, the island, the nature. There's bison on the island, I think. People do horseback riding across the island. There's, uh, I went to two harbors this summer for a friend's uh, son's yeah. bachelor party uh, where you're camping. I mean, they have these kind of, I wouldn't really call it glamping. Somebody called it glamping. And then we, you know, but they're kind of like wood floor tents with cots right. in them. You bring your own sleeping bag. But, you know, it's, it's really set up for, you, you get on the, the ferry in San Pedro. It drops you off at two harbors and it's, I don't know, there's maybe, 150 campsites there it's not it's not a huge camping place um but you're 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 diving and swimming and you know there's a little restaurant it's just it's just kind of magical that they have created that and and really share it with you know it's it's not like they bought it for themselves and they're keeping everybody off i mean they've created access and and places for people to come visit that are really special and have been there for for i guess over 100 years now it seems like Right. And we were fortunate enough, I think we were the first group that they had opened up, opened up their ranch that has been, they've spent a lot of energy and time in bringing their ranch up to, I guess, modern standards and a very special labor of love kind of way. And up there, they've got the horses, um, these incredible stables there. They actually have brought grapes um, over there. So they are doing wine on the oh, island. Wow. Is it good? And it was about, it, yes, it was amazing. It was, you know, a 45 minute ride inland on this bumpy road. We saw oh, all wow. the bison, everything, yeah. but you go up there and it's like, you're in a whole other world, a part of the island that you never even realized could be there so are there any dinosaurs do they have are they cloning dinosaurs or anything they no. they could they, they could, could. <laughs> yes. Jurassic park yes yes yeah, they could and yeah. it would be amazing no i mean it what's cool and you know i, th- I think we talked about some of this you, know, you meet i'm fortunate to do some events with the carlisle group and carlisle forum and you mm-hmm. meet some of these families that you know they're multi-generational families that have um all, I think all families by definition are multi-generational, but they, they have multi-generational family offices. So they have created a lot of wealth that they're managing and the great families, you know, they're driven by values, not by money. Um, I mean, money's a part of it, of course, because like it is for all of us, no matter who you are, right. but it's not, it's not what leads them down a path, right? They've already, they've already figured out money. Now they're figuring out how do you want to live and how do we want our generate, you know, future forebears to live? How are we going to do this? So we do it right rather than make the common mistakes of, the Vanderbilts and the Gettys and others who have, you know, struggled, I think, with generational wealth and, and family mm-hmm. offices and people are just getting a lot better at it. Um, and some of those families have gotten good at it, too. But it's it's I think it's just it's fascinating to see that. And it sounds like the Wrigley's have you know not only figured out how to do it, but how to share it and and uh, and and empower and do it with grace and do it with grace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind me asking, maybe you can tell me if, if you can't answer some of these questions, yeah. but how'd you get connected to the Wrigley's and having access to the ranch? It, this is a funny story. So I always, it, it was dumb luck, literally. The family also owns um, a winery up a little bit further north of here um, called Rusak. And okay. Um, I sent just a blind contact us email saying would love to create an experience for a group of people that I think are really special and will appreciate. Can we come up and do a wine tasting and experience things on the island? 
And Jeff Rusak responded to me and I, I'll never forget it. When I got that email, it was a Sunday and I was jumping up and down in my kitchen and I kept rereading. I'm like, I cannot believe this guy actually responded to me. Right. And it's not some intern checking emails. Yeah. And it's an engaged um, family member who cares about these things that they're they're doing. Right. And from that moment on, I mean, talking with him and his wife, Allison, they were just, like I said, so gracious and wonderful to all of us that, I still get calls from people telling me that was one of the most memorable experiences that they have ever had. That was a professional, you know, where they were doing something through work that actually impacted them as a person. So, and are, and are the Rusacks part of the Wrigley family? Is that yes? Is that the connection. Yeah. Okay. Are yeah. there Wrigley? Allison Wrigley married into the fan into the Rusak married Jeff Rusack. Yeah. Got it. That's cool. No, I, and I think that's that's just fascinating, right? Yeah, we were talking. About, I just had Diego Ferragamo on this podcast not that long okay. ago, and um, you know, I was in Florence this spring for a Carlisle event, and we ended up spending an afternoon with the with the Ferragamo family, and um, sat next to Diego at lunch. He created this film documentary film called Salvatore Shoemaker of Dreams about his grandfather Salvatore Ferragamo, yes. who you know is the founder of the Ferragamo brand. Um, his mother was Fiamma, who um, created the Vara pump, which was I think 80% of their business for a long time. Um, so just fascinating family history. He, we, we connected around sailing and, and diving and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, but you, you see, you know, um, what, what sort of surprised me about them and it sounds like it's similar here is, you know, the founder has a set of values and lives a life and usually is very involved in the development of that, mm-hmm. that enterprise. Um, and the question becomes, are they transferring those values to future generations or is it going to die with them? And when you meet families where they're not only living those sort of founder values or family values, but they're developing them and it becomes the principal thing they care about rather than the enterprise that maybe the the forebear built. It's just, it was fascinating to me. Um, that and, their why uh, in life is yeah. something bigger than just creating wealth. Right. right. It, it's, it's already done. That part's already, already. Right. It, that's it's already not going to change their life. Yeah. Right. It's just become so much more powerful. And so did you spend time with the Rusacks with the, uh, with you on that? Uh, for yes, part of they were that? so welcoming. I mean, they did the dinner with us. They gave us the tour of their ranch and, you know, we're personally there. Their dog was running around greeting everybody. Just like I said, I, the most down to earth, kind, wonderful people. That's so it cool was, to hear. It was great. Yeah. And, you know, I always think, look back on that moment, or I should say that weekend when we were there and thinking about, okay, how do we, as just a society, how do we do more of that? How do we teach that and instill that mindset with our children and those that are around us? Because every day I'm not obviously going to be on an incredible ranch with a family like that, but I can on my own level with the people I'm surrounding myself with and spending time with try and create that as well in a different way. That's awesome. Do you, um, you're, you're telling me about a book that you're reading. Is it called the big leap book? Am I getting that right? Yes. Yeah. The big leap by Gay Hendricks. By Gay Hendricks. And that's, you said that that sort of talks about zones of genius and it ties into ways that you help, help people um, discover themselves. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, I think, you know, and for me, I love reading books and, um, 
listening to podcasts, talking to people where I'm going to evolve and change. And there was a dear friend of mine that asked me, have you ever read The Big Leap? I was going through kind of a hard time and yeah. trying to figure out what, what did I want to do? Where did, what, what am I, what's my why? What am I really trying to achieve here? And he said, you've got to read this book. And it really was a transformational thing for me. It, in the book, it talks about there's really four zones that everybody can operate within, right? There's the zone of incompetence, which is the area where you spend time on things that you're not good at, um, things you should be delegating. But mm. as a small business owner, I think a lot of people get stuck in that where you're like, well, I got it. For me personally, that would be accounting, doing yeah, yeah. any type of accounting. Like, I am, yeah. right. I am not good at it, but it's just reality. You've got to manage your finances, right? Second uh, phase or zone would be zone of competence. And that's where you're doing something well, but not necessarily better than most people. Like anyone else around you could probably do it. You it. you could hire somebody else to come in that would be good at that. You're not using your true talents because you're focusing on something else that you're okay at. Um, next up would be zone of excellence which is where you spend time on things that you're really good at. Like right. when I met with you, I was like, gosh, he's so easy to talk with. You're, you're engaging, you're amazing, you're fun. You're, I'm intrigued by you, but maybe it's not, you know, you could do more. And, and from the time I've spent with you, it seems like this podcast is something you truly love, right? Yeah. And just enjoy it's, it. And don't make any money at it. I mean, I thought about monetizing it, but then I thought, ah, oh, this might actually ruin what I'm doing if I, because, you know, once you start monetizing, then you really have to hunt down high profile people you want to interview. And I think part of what makes this podcast interesting, at least for me, of course, I get some high profile people on it. But um, and I'm not saying, you know, I, I think you're high profile, but, you know, I've also included people on this podcast who are like just trying to figure it out, just getting started um, and having. Well, little we all are just trying to figure it out every <laughs> right. day, right? We're all yeah. faking it. No, but I, <laughs> make and I it think till you make it. Yeah. Or just keep faking it. Um, yeah. You know, I. I <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that like people talk about a lot. I've worked with a lot of big distributors in direct selling mm -hmm. who make you know millions of dollars a year. They're very successful, and a lot of them have problems with imposter syndrome, where they feel like they're not worthy. They they don't deserve it. You know, they didn't get the education. They didn't go through the steps. Okay, they they, did, they deserve it because they do the work and they own it and they earn it. But right, but they don't understand. You know, it's like I don't know why I'm so successful. And it's like. Dude, we're all faking it. We're all trying to figure it out. No one, anyone who tells right. you they have it figured out is lying to you. Lying um, through their teeth. I mean, it's yes. nice to have a plan. And the thing you learn if you've been an entrepreneur, you've created plans is the second you make the plan is the second you get humbled by all the things that go wrong. You didn't, yes. you know, didn't figure out. And then you figure out if you're the person who can make it work, right? That's when you right. really figure out who you're working with. Right. Um, no, well, and I think being an entrepreneur, there's probably been a lot of time spent in your life. I'm making an assumption here, but that you've spent large chunks of time in the zone of excellence, right? But sure. when you figured out how do I pivot this to zone of genius, where you are doing what you actually like genuinely love and then utilizing the skills that you have at the same time to make a positive impact then you're getting this deeper level of fulfillment. Yeah. No, and, and I think, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, that's for me of once you identify what your zone of genius is, and I, I 
really feel I have found my zone of genius where I am loving and intrigued by working in this construction industry. I am grateful for the people I'm surrounded by every day, but I'm also able to use the skills to create a positive impact. It's like, perfect. What, you know, what more could you ask for? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think like that, I mean, when, when I was, when I had the excess brand at scale and we were mm-hmm. growing that all over the world, I think, you know, the, the creativity that I, that I could bring to product development and branding was one thing, the marketing side of it. But then also I did a lot. I mean, I was speaking on stages and auditoriums all over the world for, you know, I was traveling 10 months a year doing that because we were launching products constantly in 60 different countries. Um, and so, you know, traveling and being a part of that and building relationships with our top distributors by country and, you know, helping them understand what we were doing and how it was going to help transform their business and why we were doing this together and how this was their brand and not mine. You know, they owned a piece of it as as much as I did, maybe more of it um, because of the work and effort and sweat they were putting into it. I think those kinds of things are where my, my superpowers are, or my, you know, I hesitate to say genius maybe because I don't feel like I'm really a genius at much, but, but I think, you know, there's parts where we have special powers that no one else can seem to do. And that's where I think, um, I think that's pretty fun when you find that. And then, you know, the thing is, then we built that up and we sold it and, you know, we had a very nice exit and it was the right time to do it. But then you're like, okay, now I need to figure out how to get back to that zone of genius again. Cause I was there. Yeah. I saw it. Like I, I was flying. I had my cape on. That was amazing. Right. And then you're you like, then it. you sell all that and you're like, okay, now I need to figure out how to do that again. Um, it's, 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 it's never easier the second time you still, I mean, at least you've tasted it. You know what it is, you know what it feels like, right. but then to try and find the next team culture group that you can that you can do that again with you know it's not necessarily going to be the first the first group that you step into it might not be i've had some really nice experiences after excess um and they've all been you know fairly successful mm-hmm. but the um i don't i don't think i've i've gotten back to that superpower again until maybe i think we're, we're starting to hit that stride now with nirvana but um it's tough to get back to that again it's it's, it's amazing when you find it and then I think part of the joy is trying to do it again. Um, you know, right. how do you the, recreate it? The You're journey in it. That, yeah. Yes. Do you have any yeah. do you have any tips on that? How do you how do you how do you do it a second time? How do you come back and find it again? Do they do they tell you how to do that in the book? Uh, no. <laughs> and I think I'm still on my first rodeo with it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So for me, I I really am. I'm experiencing it and I'm feeling it right now. You know, funny you mentioned a minute ago about the imposter syndrome. I mean, mm. that is a huge thing. I think yeah. for me that when I think about, okay, what, what's next for me, it's how do I continue being comfortable in my own skin right. and shedding this imposter syndrome mindset? Because everybody has it. I don't care what you've achieved. When you walk in a place, there's always that moment where you're like, Ugh. Is this, am I supposed to be here? Am I supposed to be here? Why am I in this room? Why am yeah. I in this Can stage? Can I do this? Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and you know, it's like, yeah, especially, you know, I think one of the, the hardest places, like when I've spoken for like the direct selling association or, mm-hmm. um, you know, like at the world water conference or, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's, it's one thing if you're talking to your distributors, it's like you're going to have a great day. They're going to be so happy you're right. there. There's going to be some excitement about a new product. They're just, it's like the best day on earth. When you're going to talk to your peers or even like internally at Amway, we had a top 200 global growth conference for the top 200 execs. Right. When you're speaking on that stage, it's like 
no one wants you to really be successful. Like they, they, they'll celebrate your success, but it's very competitive right. and your success might make feel some people feel like it's, you know, taking some sunlight from theirs or spotlight <laughs> from theirs. And, and I sort of feel like, you know, those are tough audiences. Cause you're like, okay, I think the big question you're, I'm always asking is why do I care? Like, why does, why does, why does the audience care about what I'm saying? I mean, I know what I want to talk about, but why would they care mm-hmm. about that? Know and when you sort of answer that question in a way that connects to the audience, you can have some really wonderful experiences from an audience that shouldn't really like you that much. Right. right. Um, but I think that's, that's also some of the fun of it is, you know, when you're sweating and when it's tough and when you're like, Ooh, I've really got to make sure that this connects and I've got it planned and rehearsed and, you know, do these, do these points really connect with people? That's when, you know, you have these big opportunities for breakthroughs that can be really special. Yes, hundred um, percent. And and I think to your point though, getting back to the imposter syndrome. Sorry, I have ADD, so I'll be a little bit all over the all place over today. It. I love it. But the but when you get to the imposter syndrome, I think how it connects is you know, look, everybody in that room, if they're honest with themselves, probably doesn't feel like they deserve it. Um, and the people who think they deserve to be there are probably assholes. Um, you know, they're, they're just arrogant jerks. And where I think the the people who have a sense of you know, one, they're probably very grateful. They probably have a sense of, I really don't deserve this. I, I can't believe how lucky I am versus mm-hmm. I've had people be like, oh, there is no luck. I, I, you know, I did the work. I'm like, okay, but let's be honest. There's a, a lot of people who do the work that don't get to some stages of success. And, you know, I think doing a lot of work does of course generate a lot better odds and a lot better success, but it doesn't, it's no guarantee. And so anyway, so I think to your point, it's very normal to have that sense because we should be incredibly grateful when we have, when we have success. Um, tell me about some of your failures. Tell me, I mean, one of the questions I like to ask is, do you, do you think you've learned more from your successes or your failures? Um, well, I, when I th- think about my failures, I, I, there's really only one that I'm like, okay, this as society would dub it is a, failure or how the institution would say this you failed was in college. And it's kind of a funny story, but it was my freshman year and I was in a biology class and failed miserably the first test. And I remember the teacher coming to me and being like, do you have a learning disability? We can work with you. And I was devastated. I'm calling my mom back at home, like so devastated. But then we found out it was a pre-med weed out course. So I was like, well, we all know I'm not looking to be a doctor and this is not a fit for me. So taking organic chemistry as a freshman. (laughs) So even though I technically failed, right. I technically failed. It worked out because then I dropped the class and went into another class that, you know, was more, I guess, aligned right for me. But um, (laughs) as far as like a misstep maybe, or something that I look back on and have regrets about is when I was offered a position um, in Denver to work for a publisher and actually be the publisher. So running the organization or running that title, I should say. And that imposter syndrome was redlining in my head. I mean, you're not qualified. You're not good at math. How are you going to run the budget? How are you going to do all these things? And instead of embracing that fear and being like, I'm going to jump in with two feet and not be afraid to ask for help. I took the fear and ran the other direction. So I think that's okay too, though. I mean, I think it's, 
it is okay to say, Hey, this isn't going to be my life's work and I need to do something else because it's not a fit. I think that's, we don't have to succeed at everything. And in fact, if, if we do, maybe we're, you know, even they're not pushing ourselves hard enough or not. (laughs) You're taking the easy route. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I've learned, you know, again, I, I then went into a different, I guess, um, path of what I was trying to achieve, where it was going to allow me to, again, continue to connect with people, spend time with people that I was intrigued by. And then consequently, obviously moved to California. And so it, it all happens for a reason, right? The cliche saying, but I, um, I don't know. I feel like that for me, I, I regretted it at the time and I wish maybe I had pushed myself a little bit more, but really I think the failure that I struggle with still is letting that imposter syndrome win. Yeah. If there's a failure, like in, in my mind, it's, it's when I let the scary side of me win over the side. That's like, you can do this. Take the risk, figure it it out, finish the project. Even if it's not perfect, just figure it out, get through it. You don't have to do it twice, but get through it and, and, and figure out how to, how to find success in the failure. And it's okay if it's not perfect, right? I mean, with <laughs> social media and just our society in general, everything is presented as such a pretty perfect picture, right. you know? And even now when I talk about doing a podcast, people say to me, oh my God, I could never do that. I hate how I sound I, when I hear my voice. Well, I hate how I sound too, but I also have a $500 microphone sitting in front of me that's making me sound better, sure. you know, doing all of these things to make it better. Um, when in reality, you know, I probably would sound horrible if I was just talking through the speaker of my computer. <laughs> well, and, and you know, look, it, uh, one of the things I love that Lewis House says about podcasts is don't even start unless you think you can do three years of it because it's mm-hmm. it's it takes, you know, every network has an exponential J curve element to it. Right. It's right. it's consistency over time and it starts slow and you're not going to see the growth until you've been doing it for a while. And then eventually, you know, you wake up one morning and be like, wow, this is really taken off after four right. or five years. Um, no. And, and I think it, it also lends itself to figuring out like, do I have a topic that I could do a few hundred shows on? Do I have mm-hmm. a topic that will, uh, you know, people want, want to keep listening to, for a few years. Um, and, and how does that work? And it doesn't, and by the way, it doesn't have to be a big audience. It could just be like, for example, you know, you've got a, you've got a curated group that you meet with. You can mm-hmm. do, you can do podcasts for a small group of very influential people that really hits on things that they care about. And it may, it may attract a larger group, but it doesn't have to be a big group. It could be, right. you know, just a core group of people in that category too. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's really fascinating. So what, what is next for you? What's, uh, I mean, it sounds like you're in a good place. I'm not suggesting that you probably want to change your life dramatically right now, but what's, what's, what's on, on your kind of future life progress, where we're going kind of planning. You know, I, for me every day when I think about like, okay, was today a successful day? Was today is a good day? You know, the answer to that is, did I experience more? And if, if it was yes, then I feel complete and I feel good. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean more money or more of, you know, things that are materialistic. It's, did I experience more joy today? Did I experience more interactions with people that I'd never met before? Did I experience more by doing a podcast today that with somebody that I am curious about and engaged with? Yes. 
So for me, what's next is I want to just keep driving on that of how do I experience more? How do I create experiences that are going to be great for my children, great for me, great for for those that are around me? And if I can keep doing that, that's that's my, I guess, life charter of what I'm wanting to continue doing, right? Just experience more. Experience more. That was one of, that was our tagline at Excess, actually. Oh, um, it was? Yeah. No well, we played off See, anything. See, I should have done more research. I no, didn't know okay. that. Sorry. <laughs> you, you didn't need to. Um, no, Excess has a, you know, um, we, we tied into different things that uh-huh. um, had that sort of excess sound to it. So experience was one of those, but um, experience more. And we were very uh, you know, kind of obsessed with total experience uh, and mm-hmm. experience more was all about, you know, drinking a drink that's going to help you do more than you thought you could. So I love that. Very, very, very cool connection. Um, Natasha, thank you for joining the Kick Aspirational podcast and telling your story thank and helping you. us think about how we can all experience more and do more and maybe be, be, be more than we thought we possibly could. That's very yes. cool. Thank you for having me. It was awesome. Thank you for joining another episode of the Kick Aspirational Podcast. You know, the most important thing to remember is this is not a spectator sport. What I'm deeply interested in is hearing about your stories and answering your questions. What does your life look like? What are you trying to accomplish? What are the barriers that you're trying to break through? Because at the end of the day, the Kick Aspirational Podcast is about helping people break through barriers of their own. I'd love to hear what you're working on. I'd love to join you in your battles. And most importantly, whatever you do today, please, among all other things, be Kick aspirational.